0: This episode is brought to you by James Gemstones.
1: I love when grandma comes to. Some mm-hmm, of you have seen three mm-hmm. generations. I love that. Grandma's paying, mom's reinserting or getting pierced, and daughter's getting new holes. <laughs>
2: That's great. You know, we skip over infection now because we're also wildly clean, possibly too clean sometimes. But actually, you know, if you're in battle... You don't want it to get in the way and you don't want it to be causing any more problems than it needs to be. So gold would be the obvious answer. But they probably didn't know that, did they? No, but they probably found it out for us. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk.
0: I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone. For people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery... And anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture, and investigate what's happening now. Today we're going to discuss something that you might have quite a lot of. We're talking about piercings in particular ear piercings, curation and styling. Yes it's a proper thing and actually I think we'll discover today it always has been. The history of putting sharp objects through the ear to create an opening in which jewellery can be worn dates back 5,000 years. There's archaeological evidence that it's Practised in various forms and cultures and by different sexes since the ancient times. And then there became this sort of hiatus when it was really just associated with pirates. But I think we've now all channeled our inner pirate and There are ear-piercing salons popping up everywhere around the world. So I'm investigating the trend today in the chic Robinson Pelham store, a stone's throw from London's King's Road, with Vanessa Chilton, jewellery graduate of Central St. Martins, and Zoe Bennion, gemologist, who together are co-founders of Robinson Pelham. So thank you for hosting me today. Hi, Hugh. Hi. First of all, I wanted to know, Vanessa, why did early humans first want to pierce their ears? What was it that made them do it?
3: Well I think it had cultural and spiritual significance. You know in some societies when children approached puberty their ears were pierced in celebration. The ancient Romans were very practical and piercings for them always served a purpose. They would pierce their nipples and ears to signify strength and virility. About the same time the Aztecs and the Mayans and the American Indians pierced their tongues And they believed it brought them closer to their gods. In Hindu religion, ears appear very young, aren't they? Within the first two years. Yeah, I think sometimes at birth, Mm. actually.
0: So there is this sort of tradition of honouring cultural values and, as you say, a sort of spiritual side to it.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, some communities believe that evil spirits possessed humans through their ears. So the earlows were pierced for them to be able to have an exit point which I think is quite interesting. You know, the evil could leave them, you know, upon their death. We'd just done um, a
0: podcast on King Tutankhamun, obviously in the 100th year of the discovery of the
3: tomb, and he had massive ear-piercing. He was doing the ear-stretching. He was doing ear-piercing and stretching. Stretching, much like Ötzi, the um, Iceman that was discovered... He also had 7 to 11 millimetre holes in his ears. So tell me about Otzi. Well, he was discovered, um, I mean, he was, he was around 5,300 years ago, I believe. And when they found his body, they found that he had not only piercings, but stretched holes in his lobe. So that's really quite interesting, really, and exciting, because that's really the earliest evidence of that sort of ear adornment.
2: I- ear stretching exists today, and it's... Slightly separate to piercing, but certainly I know that stretches. You go up from one size to another. You know, it's an achievement. You work up during your life, and so who's to say he wasn't doing the same thing? It's very difficult to pierce an ear with something very large. So if he's got a an ear stretcher, you would assume that it would start from small and grow purposefully, and, and not just be because that's the only available thing to put through their ear.
0: Could also be that they got slight infections in their ear and therefore the hole got bigger and bigger, and they tore their
2: ears. Would they get Absolutely. matching infections? Ah, no, that's a very good point.
0: <laughs> um, and so I think Julius Caesar brought it into fashion for men as well, back in the Roman times, that it became um, a luxury, so as you say, about wealth and, and common for women and men.
3: He was pierced to show his strength and signify his unity with his men amongst the Roman army.
0: Okay, so they all were pierced. Yeah, um, Piers, well, it signified apologies. strength
3: and virility. It was all about their dedication to the Roman Empire, and that was what, gold hoops. Mainly gold hoops.
2: If the troops were wearing it, it would have to be something that Practical. wasn't, go- yeah, and wasn't going to infect. You know, we skip over infection now because we're also wildly clean, possibly too clean sometimes. But actually, you know, if you're in battle, you don't want it to get in the way, and you don't want it to be causing any more problems than it needs to be. So, gold would be the obvious answer. But they probably didn't know that, did they? No, but they probably found it out for us. So how do
0: you think um, somebody in the Renaissance time, when there was a big fashion for ear piercing for men and women, as we know from the National Portrait Gallery, Sir Walter Riley and other important Tudor men were
2: piercing their ears, how, how do you think they did it? I mean, in my mind, I'm so hoping it's a frozen tomato, but no freezers, so we have to <laughs> we have to leave that one behind. Um, I suspect it was with a needle because actually, that's exactly what would have hopefully sterilised in a flame, and they would have had to have used gold or silver because they didn't have the mix. They didn't have the mix, so actually, it it was unintentionally probably an excellent way of of piercing. A tot of brandy and a needle. Yeah, well these are heroic men that (laughs) had spent (laughs) three years at sea. (laughs) In fact that's probably where it happened. (laughs) Yeah because sailors wore them for
0: um, they thought it helped their vision didn't they? And they thought that if the worst happened to the worst and they were washed up somebody could sell their earring and bury them yeah it it was a
3: burial thing
2: it was it was to hold your money for for your for your death yeah yeah to afford your burial and i guess that's where the whole pirate association came from yes on the high seas yeah because why else would you need to keep it close to you if you were living in the home counties in a plowed field you were you were fine Um, but yes, I think that's exactly, it's the portability. I mean, the portability of jewellery is, is anyway undisputed, isn't it? That's you, people have stitched it into their hems for thousands of years, but yeah, to wear it, to keep it really safe. And I guess these guys were responsible for bringing back pearls Mm -hmm. and there was a big trend for a single pearl earring, wasn't there? Yes. And what we would now call natural pearls, Mm -hmm. not cultured. So the real thing. The real deal. Yeah. And of course, if you're bringing back stones, they may not have been cut, that's a longer process you might have been you know bringing back uncut stones but the pearl is ready finished just need to attach it and i think a lot of
0: men are. Um, there's a renaissance for the renaissance and i i mean harry styles stand up at the met gala a couple of years ago with a single pearl earring and a, a allegedly had it pierced for that evening, had his ear pierced for that evening to take the pearl. I think so many young men are wearing pearls and I think they're creeping
2: up to their ears as well. Have you noticed that? Well, I think it's all in the the shape of the pearl, isn't it? They're probably not going to wear a matching pair of eight and a half millimetre rounds. But the single Baroque has always been a really good statement. In fact, I think what we have noticed is that the more misshapen the better. So if you're wearing one and it's a misshapen one, even better. Looks incredibly relaxed. Do you think men think it's too feminine to wear two? I think they do like the asymmetrical sort mm. of side of wearing
3: one. We certainly have seen a sort of trend on one hoop, haven't we? And one ear, which, which is from our collection, hanging from the hoop. We don't tend to sell matching hoops with things hanging off them to men. And so Cartilage after- piercing is also quite exciting for men. Cartilage is the top Sort of mainly the helix up here.
0: Uh Right at the very top of the ear. Um, So I think after the Renaissance there was a bit of a hiatus for a few centuries wasn't there and do you think that's really led by fashion because hairstyles were covering the ears more during those centuries so people didn't have the impetus to
2: don't know. The Victorians and the Georgians were very good at wearing earrings. They just weren't pierced. But they, they were really
0: heavy ones. They should have worn pierced, shouldn't they? Because they had these huge girondole,
2: mm.
0: um drops that were so heavy that they
2: basically had to come up with new mechanisms to take some of the weight, didn't they? Mm-hmm. If we uh, make a big pair of earrings here, we alert the customer. We say, look, these are four-hour earrings. Put them on eight. Take them off at midnight. Otherwise, you know, they will start to hurt. And that's part and parcel. You want to look that spectacular for a short amount of time. And I think the Georgians were probably following the same principle. They didn't have to look really, truly spectacular for anything other than the short window of opportunity. An evening. Yeah. So there are lots of little, beautiful, you know, those wonderful, flat Georgian garnet Georgian earrings kicking about so I think that's their day wear.
0: Because they used to have wires attached at the back that they'd strap around their heads to actually and around the top of their ear to to absorb some of the weight so it wasn't all just hanging.
2: The ones that looked like the coat hanger tops mm. um you see them coat hanger just going up around the back, around of the back yeah, of the going ear. but you, the top of the ear. you still see those I saw some on Victorian earrings the other day being worn I mean they were spectacular diamond earrings but I love that it still had the old style safety catch on and in fact I saw a designer the other day and I cannot remember who it was who had made that part of it so that lovely old safety catch of the of the top of the goat so hanger So a lot of that on the runways yeah mm-hmm. fashion totally to wonderful so that still exists but that's coming into mainstream which as so often happens
3: and now, of course, you distribute the weight by putting on large wing backs that follow the shape of the ear at the back so the earrings don't tip forward, and that's really important. That's what we find with a lot of our customers is how tricky are their earlobes? How, how much of a sort of hole have they got? Has it stretched? Do their earrings tip? How can we combat that? So we, we spend quite a lot of time, you know, advising on that.
0: So what would be the maximum weight that you would say? So this sort of four-hour...
3: Big impact statement earring, how much would that weigh? Well, I think it depends on the person, what they can take. But we generally probably won't go much more than about 13, 14 grams. No,
2: that's quite, it's quite Um, heavy,
3: yeah. You know, which is quite heavy. I mean, it's a small size AAA battery is about, it's
0: actually less than 14 grams. Mm. So really, you're saying basically, push a AAA battery in your hand and try not to go heavier than that for too long. But
2: it depends. So if you're wearing a drop earring, particularly if you're wearing a drop earring with a hook top, which is the most unkind, uh, it looks great if you've got the right earlobes, but it's most unkind to your piercing, then you need to watch the weight more. If it is an on-the-ear earring, which has a really good back, then you are distributing the weight so you can get away with far more. And you're hiding the problem area. I think this new modern trend,
0: we can sort of trace back to the 60s and 70s when everything changed culturally and that sort of hippie vibes. People were travelling, very influenced by, you know, other cultural religions and practices and came
2: back with lots of piercings. The hippies going to India... And of course, bringing back, piercing such an important part of Indian culture. Um, and if he's bringing those back to Western countries, I think it's a huge appreciation of and borrowing from other cultures. Because I don't think there was a particularly, from a Western point of view, until the Renaissance, I don't think there was a Western tradition of piercing. But I think it was exactly that. A huge appreciation of something that other cultures did, really beautifully
0: or there had been in europe like in in roman britain and in rome itself but it was a rediscovery Mm. through other cultures they brought it back and then punk exploded particularly around the king's road where we are now (laughs) um so what were they doing during um during the punk revolution
2: they were particularly keen on um safety pins for obvious reasons for everything
3: Keeping my clothes together as well as piercing them through their septums and ears. And
2: actually, that safety pin motif is now in fine jewellery. And I'm not I'm never quite sure how punks would feel about that. It's Adorned with diamonds. It's exactly. so mainstream now. I think Johnny Rotten would wear one now. <laughs> well, I mean, I sort of hope he would. But you see them, there are lots of designers that make them, and they're great, and they look fabulous on. But they are, you know, gold, diamond, titanium, sapphire.
0: So they've become established. They've come street art,
3: street culture up to establishment. Mm.
2: Yeah. But that's the, This I would say that's the same with piercing in general.
3: At the moment. And the nineties saw a massive upturn in piercing as well. And then obviously in the last ten years we've had all sorts of other piercings all over the ear now. It's sort of the norm to have cartilage, forward helixes, dates, traguses, all that sort of thing. There's nothing that hasn't been pierced on the ear now. We did a image
0: in Vogue in 2013 with a lot of piercings and I wrote at the time body piercing hits the mainstream but pretties itself up in the process so it was all about becoming more elegant a gentler beauty not that subversive I'm making a statement I'm a wild rebellious woman it was much um, sort of prettier about secret jewels personal
3: mementos.
2: 2013 is about when we had our first piercing party, isn't it? 20,
3: yeah, about 2014. But I think piercing goes hand in hand with women buying their own jewellery. And that very much happened around that sort of time, a little bit earlier, actually. Before that, you know, in our experience at Robinson Pelham, you know, men were buying jewellery for women. They were deciding what they were going to wear or, you know, women were putting things on their wish list. And when women became independent and started buying jewellery for themselves, much like they were buying their clothes, this whole sort of ear-piercing revolution happened, because it was freedom. I'm going to dress my ears, I'm going to wear something sparkly, and I'm going to have five piercings, and no one can say anything about it. So it's. I think that's quite a sort of It sort of of became more
0: sophisticated, and it was office-appropriate. Absolutely,
3: and now it really is appropriate everywhere. I don't think... It's not frowned upon, you know, I think... 40 years ago, mass piercings would have been looked upon as... She's gone wild. Yeah. (laughs) But it's become mainstream. I think lots of institutions are now allowing piercings for both men and women.
2: One of the advantages to being our age and having set up 25 years ago is it's long enough to see generational shifts. And when we started, 90% of jewellery was bought by men for women. And now 90% of our jewellery is bought buy women for themselves and men are buying for themselves or anyone else but there's a huge shift and you're absolutely right it's that financial independence mm. that really contributes to the ear
0: now i'm going to speak with maria tash the pioneer of piercing celebrated in vogue as the only place to get your ears pierced these days if you're in the big apple That was in 1993 when she opened her first studio in the East Village. And celebrities like Gwyneth Paltrow, Rihanna, Uma Thurman have been going there ever since. She started a trend and chic piercing bars have been opening up all around the world ever since. As she's a pioneer of the art, I want to know what goes into it, why she thought of it in the first place and what trends we can expect this year. Thank you so much for joining us, Maria. Welcome. So first of all, as the pioneer of piercing, I wanted to ask you, what first sparked your interest in piercing? What led you to it?
1: I think a lot of it had to do with uh, the music industry. I, I do think I had just sort of a native interest in a lot of layering of things. So if I look back into my childhood, I'm rummaging around my mother's jewelry box and I would layer multiple things on me. I didn't have ear piercings. I remember playing with her clip earrings. And then as soon as I kind of in the early 80s to mid 80s got into goth and new wave and punk, I saw a lot more imagery of multiple lobe and helix. Nothing crazy of that era, but I just, I thought it, it was so intriguing. I have no idea why I resonated so much with it, but it, I think there was an aspect of bravery to it. There was an aspect of individualism that I resonated with. Then when I started, when I was in college, I went investigating and I looked at all the beautiful indie Pakistani wedding imagery where you had the nose to ear chains. I also did two terms abroad in London at King's College London and I was going to some of the clubs in the colleges and everybody was very creative and um what were you studying I studied astronomy ah so that's not an obvious link from astronomy I know I know I know people like Lincoln I was like I can't link it uh, sparkly <laughs> I don't know I, but I I like the cosmology aspect of astronomy but um I was I also did some classes at FIT concurrently And uh, so I think it it speaks to more of I I have a scientific and um, creative mind, artistic and scientific, both in there. So um, I think both apply to piercing, actually. So you have the little medical aspect of piercing and then, of course, the artistry of design and the mechanics of the pieces, which I think speak to more scientific brain. But to answer your question, I think it was the music scene. I did have some native uh, layering uh, tendencies. And then I do think piercing is always had this sort of inherent edginess to it, probably because people are afraid and then you conquer your fear and then you nurse it to health. So it has this edgy appeal that still resonates with people, even though all sorts of people get pierced, of course, nowadays for many reasons. I wouldn't recommend piercing yourself. You can do it. I've done it. I think everybody who's in piercing has experimented on themselves and their friends. I've had my friends pierce me. I've pierced my friends. I had a piercing gun in college, which is, uh, you know, come on, do it. and then. Piercing guns were a nightmare. I've used them I, where the studs haven't gotten all the way through. It's a very barbaric, old-school way of getting pierced. And never mind, you can't control the trajectory of the angles, which is so critical into the modern way of piercing is this uh, concept. It's not about this one-dimensional dot that you're placing on someone. It's really a three-dimensional tunnel that you have to control the trajectory of. Uh-huh. And so how do you achieve that where it's the most uh, flattering to someone's face? And so many women don't know Oh, or they didn't know. Now I think it's a little bit more. Um, we, we've we worked on culture a little bit where people will be like, well, my studs point like this and they blame themselves. No, it's because you have a crappy tunnel angle and that the person was just going perpendicular to the tissue. They didn't think about marking the front and the back and creating more of a transverse uh, direction through that is actually more flattering to the wearer.
0: Yeah, so there's a science behind it. Definitely. And how did you do your first one? Did you just sort of have an apple behind your ear and go chung? No. I was a (laughs)
1: nervous uh, 13-year-old at the mall with my mom in a jewelry store in a Long Island mall. So it's not that exotic a tale. I was scared to death though, I'll tell you that much. I remember the the gal behind the counter who, it's primarily a jewelry store, was like, you'll be back for your seconds, you'll see. I was like, no way. (laughs) And look what happened.
0: <laughs> so, how many have you got now? Um, you
1: know, it's funny. I, I'm frequently asked this. I want to. I want to say approximately 16 nowadays. Um, I don't think about the number at all. It's about the quality, not the quantity. It's some many of which I don't wear jewelry in, but I can put stuff in. I've had them so many years, um, and I've had some stuff on my torso that I that I don't have anymore. Yeah, it's been a fun boy. Even the stuff in the 90s that I did. What people entrusted me to do with their bodies it was very flattering and uh very fun is it different
0: piercing the ears to any other part of the body
1: it's all skin to me i would always be like it's tissue whether i'm doing a you know a nipple piercing or an upper ear piercing it's it requires the same attention to detail about the trajectory in the front and the back. Ear work is so popular because it heals easier and the tissue is sort of suspended and there's not as much movement as compared to the torso where you're dealing with moving and, and you have to make sure the post can accommodate stretch and contraction of skin more so it's a little trickier but no I mean it's still you have to know what you're doing for your work as well. So you were pissing yourself
0: and pissing your friends and then how did you get into creating a business?
1: I was fabricating jewelry as well at this time it was very rudimentary but I didn't like the jewelry on the market for the body it was all very steel industrial. In Manhattan there's a lot of fine jewelry conventions and I would go and Actually, there was different segments. There was fine, and there was more costume stuff. And I would go and buy like very elaborate silver Indian beads. And I knew you couldn't use silver to the body. So I bought medical grade stainless steel um, yardage. And I was wrapping that, cutting the ends, rounding them, polishing and sticking on the Indian beads because they looked a little better. Then I would go to the New York jewelry district. I'd buy rose gold wire, 1.6 mil wrap it, round it, put the beads on. I decided to start piercing out of my apartment and put an ad in the back of some Village Voice. I had an ad and I had a New York Press ad. And so people came to my apartment to get pierced. It's astounding to think of it now. It's like this, you know, (laughs) sure, I'll just go to this stranger's place and I'll completely entrust them, right? (laughs) So it it was really, it was very unusual. The people would come over. And I remember like one day there was a bad snowstorm. I had an appointment for a nostril ring with a a gold ring. And you don't even know, this is like pre-autoclave. So I was pressure cooking the jewelry, like in an old fashioned where you cook your rice, that kind of pressure cooker. And um, they came through a snowstorm. And I remember thinking, boy, I have a I have a viable business if this person's willing to mm-hmm. make their way through the snowstorm. But I saw all sorts of colorful characters and they came over to get lots of things done. And uh, and then eventually I opened the retail store in the East Village, very, very low rent. So what, that was 1993? yeah. So pre 1993, I was working out of my apartment, and then 1993 came around and opened the first studio. I knew I wanted it to be in the East Village. Uh, it was the it was fun, it was cool, and I was living there natively after college. And um, it was quite an experience. I got to tell you, it was right away we got a lot of people, and I really have to hand it to like the stylists. They were the people that made a big difference. They were some of the cool clientele that would come in, get experimental stuff. Then they'd work on models and, and they would see it and then be like, this is great. Where'd you get it? And then they would come in and it just organically grew from there.
0: And now you've got them, how many different countries?
1: How many different countries? I know there's uh 11 stores in e right now. So how many different countries? Let's say US, London, UAE, Kuwait, Riyadh is opening, Dublin, so that's Ireland. Huge amount. I know it's very i wouldn't have guessed it back then um i would have been uh, thrilled but now in this day and age i'm like i would like to see us expand more rapidly but there's so much that goes into building up the business before you can just say yes here 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 you know you have to really develop the teams and Mm, mm. the quality control like even you know how do i know what's going on in let's say dubai well we have the piercers have to take front side and back angles and, and those images are streamed through the cloud into New York corporate and we watch their work and make sure they're doing what we think they're doing.
0: Do you have like a Maria Tash school for piercing? <laughs>
1: I don't have a school. We have internal training. <laughs>
0: you could have a school.
1: Yeah you know, so I went to in nineteen ninety-two, I went to uh, Fakir Mustafar who's since passed. But he had a school in san francisco and that was very good but it was a week you can't learn how to pierce in a week i mean it's a long process but i was already piercing and uh, i went there to kind of hone and learn tricks and then i got involved with some piercers in san francisco and the la coast uh la and the west coast of the u.s was a little bit more involved than the east coast in that time they had more people that were working for longer periods there and it was a very cool scene if i dare say so myself and i got involved with people out there personally and professionally and it was a very very great time, you learned all their tricks. Oh, you use this tool and you follow it with that, or you angle you grip the skin like this. You use this kind of sizing ring, so it was great, and also at that time, curved needles were just starting, so people who were working on the West coast were using cues from the medical industry. How can we reach into these crevices that have never been pierced before okay we 're going to look at the suture needles and the shape of the suture needles being used now will curve our piercing needles in a similar way. And then let's, how do we do it? So there was a lot of creativity in that era. Do you think it's
0: reached peak creativity now? Are there any undiscovered parts of the ear?
1: Yes, there are. Okay. (laughs) So (laughs) recently there's um, two piercings. I actually, I patented because after a while I was like, I want some credit for all this. So I patented something called the Tash Helix and the Tash Hidden Rook. They are, let's see, I got the earpiece in here. I'll do it um under this flap at the very top of your ear so yeah that flap that curves over underneath but the correct the the thing that's patented about it is piercing up in there and straight back and under the other flap it's up in there and straight up so you just get a sort of hidden twinkle it's hidden so i think nobody's thought about it because like well why do you want something that's hidden but the point is is the concept of emergence right i wanted something that Things look like, how the heck is it in there? How is it placed in there? And then you just have emergence of design, which I thought was very interesting. Like, you don't really care about the entrance of the piercing. It's just the effect. Mm-hmm. So um, I was inspired by recessed lighting and like specifically like the molding on the wall and light hidden behind that. That just kind of merges out. So that was the concept for it. And I'm very pleased, and I had done things called vertical industrials that were popular in the 90s in the conch shell, and I utilized part of that. I knew I'd done many of them, and I was like, oh, why don't we just poke up here and higher and hide some wire? So they had to develop the jewelry that could go in there. What are these mechanisms? What do they look like? What's the curvature? Curve the bar? Is it six mil? Is it five and a half? And how do things emerge out and move? I always like when they move. I like the ones you're wearing, which are moving, these hoops. Yeah, well, me and my big hair every Yeah,
0: you have to get the big hair out of me.
1: There's a gorgeous. Thank you. I don't know what you can see. Let me just take this thing out for a second. There we go.
0: And so they're just straight through normal piercing, that one.
1: This one is normal whole one that you're that you're speaking about, I think. And then I have my little fellas off to the side here and then uh, hanging drilled ones over there and I've got my dot one. Oh
0: yeah, in the center. Inside there. So that's like a sort of inner hoop on your inner ear, just a little hoop.
1: Yeah, so you get in that little ridge with a curved needle. That was part mm. of the, the guy that actually developed that piercing did mine and it was great. The good thing about it was that he executed it. The bad thing was I couldn't watch him do it, so I was like, oh, in terms of the training, but...
0: You know. Are there different trends on either side of the Atlantic? Sort of New York, LA,
1: London. Yeah, this is a it's a good an interesting question. I think social media has equalized it a lot. I would say, you know, when we first opened in, let's say, in London and Liberty, I, I noticed a lot of like yellow gold and a lot of spike jewelry, and I was like, oh, is that because it's like a little bit you know near Carnaby and uh, you know, so homage to punk and stuff. But I think. Nowadays, I can't really regionalize it like that. We do a little analysis of who's selling more yellow to white. The Middle East is more white gold, more big diamond heavy. Uh, L.A. West Coast, a little more yellow gold. L.A.'s only been open a few months, so we're still tallying the data. Um, and New York has always been strong. And I think white to yellow about equal ratio. So maybe more yellow gold in L.A., white to yellow equal and Middle East is heavily white. Mm -hmm. I like rose gold, but it's always third place.
0: And where's the most sort of avant-garde place where they push the boat out and have really unusual piercings?
1: I think it's person dependent. It's not region dependent. I like when people don't even have first holes, etc. And they just do something very big and dramatic in a hidden, like a hidden thing. So if you had a large piece just moving under your ear, and that's all you have. So your attention's drawn to that. And then people are like, how is that in there? What is the, that's to me more avant than a slew of 15 up your ear yeah because you know? quite a lot of people now have that don't they well yeah that's why i said it's not about quantity mm. right it's we're all about what's the piece you're wearing mm-hmm. how is it hidden in there how well was it executed mm. and what's the quality of it
0: and any celebrity who you think does it really really well
1: um i i always like rihanna because well first because she got the tash helix and the tash hidden rook so <laughs> i'm very <laughs> pleased with that Did you do it? Did
0: you do it yourself on Rihanna? I
1: did not do it. I didn't do it on myself. A gal at Broadway did it. Um, She's also been into Liberty. In general, when you know she's coming, add two hours to your reality. You know, it's going to be at least two hour wait before she comes in. (laughs) But I think she has great style. I think she and I have very similar tastes without even meeting. And um, what she wears, I wear. When I make stuff for me in, in high jewelry, I always know I can loan it to her that she would like it. So I have a lot of confidence in her taste because it's very similar to mine. Um, and I felt that way for several years, even when she was getting stuff at Liberty, I was like, ah, oh, those were my favorites. So this is, she's wearing it exactly like I would. So, and people admire her for the way she's got the big hand tattoo and then the wears multiple things and, and can slip in and out of a lot of different worlds. I like that. And you famously had Gwyneth Paltrow in with her daughter, didn't you? Did you pierce them together? I did not uh, pierce them. Uh, I have worked on other mother-daughter teams like Uma Thurman, and I'm trying to think. I've I worked on a lot of celebrities, but I'm not really piercing very much anymore. I do it upon request, but I'm more in corporate office working in more of a CEO capacity nowadays. Running the empire. Running the empire. I mean, I do, <laughs> you know, I will pierce upon request. It's just one time they're like, will you fly to LA to pierce this one person? And I was like, Ugh. you know, I don't, I could, but it would have to be very compelling. And because I have a really competent team, I don't pierce every day anymore. I can do a great job. It'll, you know, I can put some needle through very fast, and but my setup will be longer. They'll execute it faster, but I'm very still, I think my attention to detail, I always try to impart that on, onto the staff mm-hmm. constantly. It's a process. So you've delegated, delegated the piercing. Yes, yes.
0: But it's quite, I mean, a lot of sort of middle-aged mothers are coming with their daughters having piercings. Are they trying to look like their daughter? Are they no. sort of slightly stealing their trend?
1: Oh, come on. <laughs> Half of those women were in the eighties, listening to New Wave and they had three piercings on one side. You know, it's not like they were, they're such a stick in the mud. In fact, you know, a lot of, uh, most of the women that come in reinsert a piercing and then their daughter's like, oh, wow, she had it. She's, look at mine." yeah, come on, your mom's not, you know. So I don't feel that way. And I love when grandma comes too. Because some mm-hmm, of you've seen mm-hmm. three generations. I love that. Grandma's paying, mom's reinserting or getting pierced, and daughter's getting new holes. <laughs> there was um, a British writer who talked about, said it's a very good way to have a midlife crisis.
0: <laughs> Stacey Dugood. She said, it's less dangerous than getting a Harley Davidson. And quite frankly, I'm too tired to have an affair. That's cute. That's cute. <laughs> off to
1: to get pierced that's right you got to go on the back of the harley with some beautiful man in the front but anyway (laughs) and then like for me plastic the concept of plastic surgery is very scary because i don't have control i'm out and i wake up to something this it's like i can create something where i feel different it's integrated with with fashion and i have control yeah it's much better
0: and it can be transformative but i guess it can get addictive i guess if you've had it and you get a lot of compliments and you feel great, yeah. I guess the danger is you, you, you do want to keep going back for more.
1: I think so. But remember, it's not really about quantity. But yes, if you're happy with something and you want to add to it, mm. then you start fantasizing about how to add to it. There are a few people who still haven't had piercings. What's your advice to them? You know, first timers. Don't be afraid. I think what you wanna do is be able to get a good preview of what you're gonna get. At Marie Attached, we should be able to slide things on your ear. I mean, rings, you can get pierced with rings or studs nowadays. You just have to make sure that whoever pierces you is worried about, gets the correct trajectory. If your ears go into the mirror, if your ears stick out a little bit, so-called not attached, it's easier to do a forward-facing angle, even if you don't know what you're doing. But most people's ears are semi-attached, which means they fall sort of parallel with your cheeks. And even in the Middle East, I noticed there was a lot of plastic surgery for people getting the ears tacked back, which makes it even more challenging to do uh, nice forward angles. So I would make sure, especially if you're going to go somewhere and and you have semi-attached ears, that you pay careful attention to the angle that is executed Hmm. and talk to them. If they don't know what you're talking about, then get out of there. I think the basics of saying, make sure things are clean and sterile, hopefully are now a given, but obviously if people are not using gloves or they don't have an autoclave and things like that, you should be out of there. That's a basic now. Hmm. And you know, part of the artistry of it is if people have existing, what do you do? Do you match existing or do you create a new, uh, different angle to the channel? That's stuff we discuss with the client and make a decision together. Mm -hmm. Also, if you have like slitty holes, you can do like a, a tiny little stud above hole one and it makes it look more deliberate. Like the placement was deliberately done low and now you have something high. So there's lots of tricks. Oh, that's
0: good. You see, I should have done that. I had that years ago. And then I did a big story for Vogue. I mean, this was a long time ago. Yeah. And I had my hole, which I'd had done when I was 15 in some dive <laughs> yeah. and it was done in the wrong place. I had it cut out and sewn up with micro stitches, uh-huh. waited six months, then they re-pierced it. Yeah. And it's never been the same.
1: Yeah. I had, I used to have stretched lobes. I can send you some photos back in the day. I too have been reconstructed and re-pierced from there. Uh, so I've experimented with all that stuff, but it is true. You do have some scar tissue. You have to pierce next to it. Ideally you can pierce through it, but generally we go right near it. Um, theoretically the scar can anchor the piercing in place more. if You do it properly, but you know, people don't think about, uh, the placement as much and it's really, there's little tricks now in piercing where we can make things look deliberate that were done haphazardly. And you do that with stacking, with staggering of accent pieces. Could you ever do anything to the
0: lobes? Would you ever kind of enhance the, the actual flesh of the lobe as well
1: as part of it? We've had uh, some clients go get fillers in their lobe and you know create a more of a robust thing. I have never found the need to do that. I I don't think it's necessary. What does it look like? Does it look good? I mean, I think if you feel that there are really very loose, uh, slim skin that has sort of wrinkles to it, then go ahead, go get filler in there. How that affects piercing, I'm not sure. But the piercing is actually a cut and pushes the tissue aside. It's not a coring out of material with the style of needles that we use. So you're literally just cutting and pushing aside. Would that affect the filler? Probably a little, maybe, but probably so minimal. It's a very tiny uh, hole. Hmm. I actually think it's better to place jewelry in a way that will draw your eye away from any scars. Uh, So let's say you have a scar here. If I put a prominent piece of jewelry on my upper ear, your eyes immediately are going to get drawn to the piece and not so much that scar. I do the same way with, like, let's say, eye color. Let's say I have green eyes. If I wanted to place an emerald in my helix or somewhere near on the same sight line as my eyes, I think that's a great technique to enhance my eye color and draw away from any other features I may not want you to notice first. So do people come to you for styling, air styling? Yes. In fact, that's a huge part of the business is coming in, meeting the stylist, How are you going to layer things? Not only that resonates with your aesthetic. So let's say not everybody wants big diamonds. Some people don't want any diamonds at all. So they try to read, respectfully read the client's personal aesthetic and look at what other pieces they're wearing. And then it becomes a matter of, you know, do you want to stick with that or what color of gold resonates with your skin tone? Uh, Once again, there are clues in what people already are wearing or their apparel choices and the undertones there. Uh, But styling and the more advanced styling, we're actually gauging people's features and talking to them about you want to emphasize your beautiful blue eyes? Have you considered this blue sapphire? Now let's hold it up and move it around. Oh, you like it? Okay, right there. And then what kind of shape is it going to, um, you know, you want marquee, you want pear? Are we going to try and create a story with a couple of pieces? Let's say you have a flower that has marquees as petals. Do you want a petal to fall down and sort of drip on your second hole where so you can do all sorts of pretty little kind of stories too when you're advanced styling
0: and what happened in covid i guess you couldn't pierce anyone in covid
1: right with the retail stores shut uh we weren't the middle east was the last to close and the first to open bless them Mm -hmm. um we were doing things virtually like so we had um all of our piercers and stylists the the main um heavy hitter ones were online talking to people And we created all sorts of virtual sessions with everyone, booking them all around the world, five languages. So the minute it was open, they rushed in to have the piercings. Well, and they did come in right away. I have to give it, I was worried. You know what I was worried about? The masks. I was like, oh, who's going to get ear work with the loops on the ears? And you know what, we had to um, work with the piercers. I actually fought with some of the piercers because they were piercing with the loop on. And I was like, You've got to take the loop off or else the ear is torqued and torqued in a way that is not natural. And I was very mad. Oh, my God. It's so obvious to me and not obvious to everyone. So then we talked about carrying masks that came and strapped around the back of the neck. But realistically, what happened was people would take the loop off, hold it up and then put it back on afterwards. But seriously, it did. I was worried about it. Like, did people get angles that are, were suboptimal uh, for a certain period of time? But, but I
0: guess some people must have been gagging to get in and have that piercing done.
1: They were. There was a lot of uh, pent up. It was good. I, I was very pleased. It did not, it did not hurt outside of just being closed. But people came back. The demand was there. Thank goodness. But we had to put, we did all sorts of stuff. We implemented UV, like, because if people would touch a finger ring or a necklace, because I have not just pierced jewelry at the store, we have standard. You know, we would take it, they tried the finger ring on, we would take it and put it in this, like, phone soap thing, which is a UV disinfectant, just for touching it. And then we had this other, I think it's called ATP testing, where it's a long Q-tip, and they would come and swab the case, put it in the machine, and make sure that any viral load or bacterial load was... About, I mean, we implemented all the stuff that was way above and beyond what standard jewelry stores were doing, specifically because we had the service. But we sat down. I was like, I knew UV had to become part of it. And I'm actually glad. we. Uh, there were a lot of good things that came out of it in terms of what we continue to do.
0: And the next trend, is there a new trend around the corner for 2023? Oh,
1: trend! you know, I always, uh, whenever I hear that word, there's a part of me that kind of uh, recoils because that doth. It got it in like 1992, 1993. That dot piercing, it's still popular. And look at it, look how many years later. So I mean, is it a trend? It I do think part of the reason I have so much confidence in opening new stores is because I was around then, and what people really enjoyed then, they're still doing it now. Yeah. So that's good. I mean, it's you know maybe people were 20 years younger, but who cares, right? It's still still good. Thank goodness. Trend wise, I think it's up to me. I have to push. New designs for those hidden placements. i got to come up with new ones. There is one that we are launching, um, something called a Tash Lobe. You'll see what it is. I'll be curious as to your your take on it. I think you'll like it. Uh, It's a variant on an earlobe.
0: And then just the same, whatever personal choice, really. It's white, yellow, stone, not stone. Whatever people feel like. Yeah.
1: What about you? Do you wear a dominant metal? Yellow gold right now. Yeah.
0: At the moment. Uh-huh. I, you know, I did wear white for years, and now it just seems yellow is right. Yes. Mm. I, it's
1: So isn't that interesting? So I, too, tend to wear white and yellow. When I was young, I wore a lot of silver jewelry. And then I think I rebelled, and I did more yellow. And then um, getting into bigger white diamonds, I tend to wear it with white gold now. Um, but I switch around. Mm. And also... Depends on your clothing choices too, right? I think people who really are into it, they have sets in white and yellow. They can switch it out for once. uh, And I always want people to be able to work with their own thing and change it out themselves. I don't want you to be dependent on anyone to be able to put jewelry in and out. That's ridiculous. So I've always felt that way. Mm, mm. And that's a lot of the early piercing jewelry. You couldn't get it out. You couldn't get... And when you did get it out, it was a thick piece of jewelry. It contracted. You couldn't get the thing back in. You just went through all this pain and and healing so that was very important to me with early design is understanding the stasis point by which piercings would shrink and what is that size of metal that goes in there Mm -hmm. and is it safe to use initially so new piercing placement some new mechanisms and different things uh climbing out of unusual spots of the ear lots happening lots to look forward to
0: well maria thank you so much for sharing that with us and, and talking to us thank you so much
1: my pleasure thank you very much for having me on
0: Thank you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes of If Jewels Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwiltoncom slash podcasts. Please share it any way you can. Subscribe to the podcast feed. And don't forget to leave us a comment or a rating and a star would be wonderful. And if you want to know more about our sponsors, please go to fullygemstones.com. And join us again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget, when I'll be talking about something at the intersection of jewellery, technology and fashion, the watch. And we'll be talking with Tom Bolt, who's the watch guru. He also happens to be the son of double Oscar-winning screenwriter Robert Bolt and actress mother Sarah Miles. So he's had a very interesting life, which revolves around watches. And please join us to hear more in two weeks. Goodbye. If Jules Could Talk with Carol Woolton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labander, and you can find me on Instagram at Carol carolwoulton.